Welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Each week on Vernacular, we explore the art of being truly and fully human. Most of the time, that means that Sally and I chat for 15 to 20 minutes about a topic, general or specific, and how it helps us understand what it means to be human. But we don't have all the answers, so occasionally we invite guests on the show to help us tackle this question in the context of their job or hobby, current events, or pop culture. Thanks for joining us as we practice the art of being human. Hello, welcome back for another episode. Yes, today we're going to talk about immortality and specifically why not immortality. But before we do that, just a quick shout out to some listeners who reached out to us and talked to us through Anchor. If you are listening to us through Anchor or you have not downloaded Anchor yet, you can do that. You can just send us a voice message or a text message. Yeah, it's a really cool feature. You can also reach us on Twitter or email or website, vernacularpodcast.com, all these different ways. But we just wanted to recognize Nicholas and Ella Bariki for reaching out to us on Anchor and saying hi. Ella Bariki was from Tanzania, so that was pretty cool to have an international listener say hi. So thank you, Nicholas. Thank you, Ella Bariki. To all of our other listeners, please reach out and say hi. Let us know where you're from. What you like about podcasts, what you disagree with us on, what you agree with us on. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Always love that. All right. So immortality. So last week, or not week, but last episode, we identified, we were talking about stages in the span of a human life cycle, and we identified the final stage of a human life as aging and ultimately death. And so we're going to add to that this week. And we're going to talk about death and why not immortality, which is a question that Leon Cass asked in an article that he wrote and a few other articles he often has written about that topic right and if you're picking up on a common theme throughout our podcast it's that we rely very heavily on the work of leon cast he's one of our favorite contemporary bioethicists and we strongly encourage our readers to go read him he is a very accessible writer but very thoughtful very thoughtful and he thinks good things about the way we live and the art of being human so In that way, he has given us lots of fodder for discussion on this podcast. And so we, again, are using one of his articles as a launching point for this discussion. Um, And in so doing, are going to talk about why we should not live forever. So before we do that, we'll just set it up for you. So human beings, we've talked about are finite creatures, and we don't live forever currently. And But that fact does not stop us from dreaming about a life without death. In other words, an immortal life. There are so many books and movies and even religions that wrestle with this hope of immortality. And it is a tempting prospect. It's We kind of innately have this fear of death. And, and we think of aging as a disease. So it makes sense that we would want to seek Live immortality. Yeah. yeah, to avoid death entirely. And if not entirely, then at least to indefinitely postpone aging or death and extend our life our, our lifespan right and i think that in in times past this was much more of a theoretical question because when the human lifespan was 60 and many people died from you know common colds or strep throat at 30 yeah living forever didn't seem like yeah, reasonable it yeah well, it wasn't a practical conversation to have yeah. but now we're we're getting to a point or at least we're close enough to a future that we can almost see in which we've solved a lot of these problems. And this is why Alphabet, formerly Google, has a company called Calico, the California life company that's dedicated to solving the problem of aging and death. It's why a number of very well-funded Silicon Valley startups are solving this problem or trying to solve this problem. We, We have this desire to live forever. And now for maybe the first time in history, that is a future that is somewhat conceivable. But I also think it's problematic. 
Yes. Yeah. So we're going to assume that medical technology is going to advance to this point where human beings can indefinitely postpone aging or death or both and essentially live forever. That could be through drugs and hormones right. or through stem cell and cloning technology. Or to be even more radical, that could be even through uploading your consciousness to the cloud, which is the ambition of several people who are working on that exact problem set. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is sort of mind-boggling stuff. It gets very theoretical. Yeah, but people are working on this, so we're just going to assume that medical technology will reach that point, and then we need to ask, should we go for it? Is an immortal life, or even just a significantly extended life, a truly human life? Are death and aging essential parts of what it means to be human, or inessential parts that we can just get rid of and we'll still be human? Right, yeah. And maybe a third way of asking that question is, what is necessary to be a human being? And I mentioned that we are using one of Leon Cass's articles as a launching point for our discussion here. Um, if you want to read that article, it's called L'Chaim and Its Limits, Why Not Immortality? It appeared in um, First Things, but it was originally a lecture that he delivered in Jerusalem. He is a Jewish philosopher. Um, and uh, we highly recommend that you can go to our website, vernacularpodcast.com, and it is linked from there if you're interested. Um, and he says in that, that to argue that human life would be better without death is to argue that human life would be better being something other than human. In other words, if we take away death and mortality from the human condition, then it ceases to be a human condition and simply ends up being another condition of existence. And he does clarify in his article that by death, he does mean the fact that we must die. So human finitude, our mortality, he's not talking about premature death or untimely death. Those things are sad and we do want to get rid of those. So we agree with him and that's the definition that we're going with as well. And I think that this is actually a great opportunity here to counter a possible objection, which is 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 kind of a straw man objection as Cass mentions, but the objection is how can you say death is not a terrible thing, right? How can you say that the 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 parent who has to watch their child die because the the disease that they have is incurable? How can you say that that is a good thing and a, a necessary part of the human condition? Yeah, wouldn't a deathless life be happier and more carefree right. and more joyful? So that is not the argument that we are making, though. We're not saying that all death, as it happens in the world, is a necessary part of the human condition. The lives, and we've talked about this previously, the lives ended by war, the lives ended by disease that, you know, in, in for children or young adults, that is Murder, not— Murder, car accidents. Absolutely. None of that is a necessary part of the human condition, and we're not saying that is the case. We're just talking about human mortality. Right. The fact that we must die, the fact that, and we've talked about this, right, in the last episode, the stages and shape of a human life, the fact that we have these stages of life, the fact that we become parents and then grandparents and then great-grandparents, maybe great-great-grandparents if we're very fortunate, and then our bodies eventually decay and we become old, we need the assistance of a walker, maybe a wheelchair, and eventually our bodies fail us. That, the necessity of death, is something that makes human life truly meaningful. That is the thrust of our contention. Okay, so let's get to the costs of immortality. If we pursue immortal, deathless existences, then we see there's three costs. The first one is the justice cost. Yeah, and I don't think we need to spend too much time talking about this because I think most people would agree with this. If you've seen the movie In Time, 
um, a movie directed by Andrew Nichols, who is also the director of Gattaca. Which we've talked uh, about before. Which we've talked about on the podcast. We love Gattaca. Yeah, Justin Timberlake stars in In Time. Yeah, um, and Amanda Seyfried. And it's it's actually very good. I like the movie a lot. It's very interesting. I think it was sort of underrated when it came out. If you haven't seen it, I'd encourage you to. Essentially, to give you – I don't want to spend too much time on this. To give you a 20-second snapshot, this is a future – in which we've figured out a way to live forever, but time as an extension of your life is dispensed to each person according to his or her means. And so you end so up you having, buy time. So you buy time. So you end up having a world in which the rich people can live forever because they can buy an essentially unlimited amount of time and poor people die because they, they have to have their time rationed to them in, in essentially a welfare system. And so the Justin Timberlake character and Amanda Seyfried become sort of a Bonnie and Clyde, Robin Hood-esque type um, of couple. Trying to give time to the poor. Exactly. But it highlights this justice problem that we can, I think, all agree is bad. That in a world in which we've figured out how to, quote, cure disease, um, inevitably or almost inevitably perhaps, um, there would be inequities in how that disease was cured. In other words, some people would be able to live forever because they had the means to do so, and other people would be left out in the cold and would still have to face death. I think we can agree that's a bad thing, um, but we're not going to spend too much time on that. Yeah, and I think also we could also imagine a world that achieves immortal existence and also figures out some way to organize things so that we don't have this poor, rich separation. Right, exactly. So I think, well, I think we'll agree that we all agree that's a bad thing. Yeah. So we'll set the justice cost aside. Right. And instead, we're going to focus on the two other costs that we think together are even more compelling than the justice cost. Yeah. And that is first the personal cost and then the intergenerational cost. So the personal cost, we mentioned the article, L'Chaim and the Limits of Immortality. And Leon Cass speaks of the personal cost of immortality with four points. And we've kind of distilled those down to three points. Right. Yeah, so I think basically to make this to make this nice and simple, three points. I, I always believe in like the efficiency of arguing in in threes. It's a rule a of triangle. three. Um, if you watch President Obama's speeches, he always very effectively uses the rule of three when he's arguing. I, yeah. I just think it's a very effective rhetorical technique. So I think the first is that we're more engaged in life due to the fact that we die. The second is we're more likely to cherish beauty. And the third is because of the fact that we die, we have immense capacity for virtue and sacrifice. So those those are we'll, we'll talk each about each of those in turn, but those are sort of that with broad brushstrokes, that is what we miss out on if we are immortal. And so as a result, death and mortality actually give meaning to life, and they help us appreciate and make the most out of the lives that we live, whereas immortality would make human life less meaningful. Right. So the first, you mentioned, we are more engaged in the life that we have because we know that it's going to end. Mm-hmm. And I think knowing that too just inspires us to challenge ourselves and take risks and aspire to higher heights and make these big goals for ourselves that we want to achieve before we die, not right. knowing when that'll happen. Yeah, totally. I think I, I think of the, uh, the the refrain of the procrastinator, which I have have been known to be a procrastinator by many people. And I, I've said jokingly, before that if I wait to the last minute, it only takes a minute. <laughs> and there's some truth to that, which is that basically when you're in a time crunch, you can get so much more done. And But in a normal life, there's no time crunch. Right, exactly. <laughs> so I think the the time crunch, even at a macro sense, where we just know that that our time here is finite, yeah. we we will inherently be motivated 
to do things. At some point, we're probably going to kick things into gear, even if you're a natural procrastinator. Right. At some point, like you said, even if it's the last minute, right. you're going to kick things into high gear. Now, let me here respond to an objection, which I anticipate, which is we've talked before about how we are not what we do, right? The human being has fundamental intrinsic worth, and that worth is not based on productivity. Uh, China has been criticized roundly recently and deservedly because they are assigning a social score to each of their citizens, wow. a measure of how productive and contributing this member of society is to China. Wow. So we're making this argument that life being finite ends up meaning that we can do more things. And I don't mean to suggest that that, that, that our... That, our productivity is somehow a measure of our worth. Yeah, it's not about the results that we achieve during our lives. It's about the passion and the energy and the sense of urgency and engagement that we have in with in life and are living our lives. Right. And if I can just speak from a personal standpoint, I've thought previously about what I would feel like if I was living forever. And the strongest emotion that has risen to the forefront has been boredom. I don't know what I would do and I would fear being bored if I could live forever because it is the, I mean, to, to use a more, a more basic example, perhaps the reason that it's so thrilling to ride on a motorcycle at 60 miles an hour down the highway and feel the breeze in your hair <laughs> is because you realize that is a fleeting moment Yeah, and you realize it's dangerous. And so there's this sort of, you know, like you're, you're, you're reminded very uh, imminently of the danger of what you're right. doing and, and your sort of finitude in that sense. But the reason that it's that you can appreciate it is because it is so fleeting. And I think on a more, not necessarily mundane, but just kind of like a day-to-day -day level, what would inspire us to get married and have children and pursue the, that kind of an existence if we just knew, wow, I have time forever. I can I can take as much time as I want to choose my marriage partner and to have kids and to explore my youth. I have forever, literally, yeah, or at least a significantly extended lifespan. Yeah, totally. And um, I'll just use that as a launching point for the second one, which is beauty. We talked about how you can appreciate beauty more. And my motorcycle analogy is relevant here, I think, because in the same way that we can appreciate the experiences that we're having and the things that we're doing because they're fleeting, we can also appreciate beauty more. So um, think of think of an example. Well, we live in Austin, right? And um, where we live in Austin is known for blue bonnets, these beautiful blue flowers that pop up, but they only come up at a certain time every year and they only last for a couple of weeks when they're around. And so what people do during those that two week window, the blue bonnet season, is go to the hill country and look at the beautiful blue bonnets. And they know that they only have this short window to do it. And so they prioritize that and they're able to, to make their annual pilgrimage to the hill country to see the blue bonnets knowing that those blue bonnets will wither and die. So they, they are able to go take them in with, I think, a much greater appreciation just with the knowledge of the fact that those blue bonnets aren't going to be around forever. And I think similarly uh, with human beings, we see the beauty in other human beings and we cherish that beauty and we want to cherish our time with our loved ones because we know that it won't last forever. Right. Absolutely. So thirdly, on the personal cost, yeah. we only mortal human beings who are neither beasts nor gods, as we've said before, can be noble only Mortal human beings can be just, can be good, can be self-giving to the point of sacrificing their entire lives. Right. Only people who have something to lose, something to sacrifice, can exemplify, can live out those kinds of virtues. 
Right. So Sally and I are Catholic, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about the example of Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who spent her entire life helping people who were way less fortunate than herself when she could have been pursuing things that would have brought her brought her material wealth or material satisfaction or power or fame. She was instead helping people and dedicating her entire life to that. And so she, we were able to look at that and recognize the value of that and recognize her sacrifice by virtue of the fact that she chose the limited time that she had on earth to do that. And so it, it brings richness and meaning to the sacrifice in ways that it couldn't possibly if Mother Teresa were living forever and decided she would just take 70 years of infinity spending her life or sp- spending the time giving to the poor, right? Right. Okay. So the personal cost, now the intergenerational cost. So we are not only individuals living our own personal history and mortal or immortal lives, but we're also part of generations, generations that have come before and generations that are going to come after us. Right. But an indefinitely prolonged lifespan and curing death would actually undermine and probably eventually destroy those relationships. Because why would we bother to raise our children well? Why would we bother to pour ourselves into their development, to pass on our knowledge and our wisdom to them if they're never going to actually take our place in the world? We, we, why would you even bother to have children at all? What's, I mean, what's, what's the rush? Why take on unnecessary responsibilities? I think in today's society, we often criticize the like overprotective helicopter parents. And I think in a deathless world, parenting would result in a far worse extreme. And I think people would begin to resent their children and children begin to resent their parents. And even if we all never aged and we all kind of just lived in our 20s or 30s, I think we would still resent the fact that the older generations were not making way for the younger generations. And we would just end up kind of crowding each other out. I think you're right. I think that also anybody who is an adult and has lived, you know, under the same roof as their parents growing up and then left for a job or college or or just to start their own life um, somewhere else, I think they can resonate with that because there is a moment, a very... Maybe it's not as clear for some and more clear for others, but there is a moment in the life of every person who's growing up where there there is a time to be independent from your from your parents. And in that moment, the parents step back and assume a different role. And the the way that they relate to their adult child who's outside of their their house, no longer under their roof, is very different from the way that they relate to them when they're a child living under the roof and they're relying on their parents for instruction and for food, literally. Um, and as a parent now, someone who's obviously a parent of very young children, I can appreciate that. And I, I'm thinking ahead already, um, maybe too much, but uh, you know, I don't want it to come. I don't want our girls to grow up and, and leave the house. But when they do, I think it will be a good thing fundamentally for me to step back into that new role and have a new type of relationship to my daughters. And then when they have their kids, they'll move into the role that I now have, and I'll move into a grandparent role and be able to see my grandparents or grandchildren grow up and do the things that maybe I wish I could have done, but now I can't because I'm in this other stage of life. And I'll, I'll, I'll be able to enjoy watching them do that. And those that passing on of roles is more obvious because we have stages to our life. And right. because we have a, even though an unknown, but an inevitable end. Yeah, I completely agree. And this is exactly what we talked about in the last episode, the stages and the stages and shape of a human life. I think we need these to give us to give us meaning because if everyone lives forever, uh, what in, what what will change about the parent child relationship ever? So, as one final point before we wrap up here, 
immortality seems like this this wonderful dream and defeating death seems like the ultimate cure to life's ills but conquering death and mortality is not the answer it would not make us more whole to live forever it would not make us more fulfilled more virtuous or feel more loved we would still be struggling with those same deep deep desires if even in an immortal world the one final thing i'll say is that to many people this world that we have now this phase of existence is all that there is but there is a possibility that there's a lot more and that by seeking immortality here in this existence is really just like a fish insisting on swimming in the same little tiny fishbowl uh, over and over again when that fishbowl is sitting in the middle of an ocean and right outside of the fishbowl if the fish would only accept that would be a much greater reality to enjoy I'm by your side